Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, books editor of The Spectator. This week I'm joined by John Sutherland, who is the Emeritus Lord Northcliffe Professor of English Literature at UCL. Now he describes Emeritus as being the Latin for scrap heap, but he's a very productive scrap heap indeed, if scrap heap he be. And his latest book is called The War on the Old, in which he discusses how there is, as he sees it, a covert kind of campaign practically of extermination through neglect being waged against the old people of this country. John, a lot of people will say a war going on against the old. I know, it's a very, it's a very kind of... It's an overstatement, of course. Uh, it's, it's an eye-catcher. But I think we're talking here on the 15th of December. And yesterday in, in the Times, there was... On the front page, there was an interesting article about how a million people are being tossed out of hospitals in the middle of the night in the small hours of the morning. And a huge number of them are dementia patients with nowhere to go to. And, you know, it passed by, it wasn't picked up anywhere else. And it seems to me that there is a kind of sort of, as it were, constructive or destructive neglect. I mean, it's almost like somehow we avert our eyes from from things which we don't want to deal with or, you know, leave to sort themselves out. It's kind of but in fact, this at the same day, the fourteenth of, of, of December, two thousand and sixteen, on the Today program, you know, John Humphreys, who's seventy-three years old, I believe, said, you know, sort of, uh, or at least reported that that dementia is now the leading cause of death in Britain. It's ahead of heart disease and cancer, and one in three of us who survive and more of us are surviving all the time. A good thing, say the politicians, not meaning it, of course, because it's an extremely inconvenient thing. It means that, you know, sort of it's, it's a, an epidemic for which there is no cure. The same edition of the Times said that the only possible solution is what they call crazy science. You know, silver bullets, you know. What did Philip Larkin well, Silver call? bullets in the... Back of the oldies' heads. Indeed, yes, um, and and you know they're as good as new. You know, we. Uh, I mean, the fact is that they, there's not a lot of money being put into it because it's not a very sexy disease. And the fact is, it it is extremely hard. You know, it is decay. It's very hard to mend decay. You can mend a broken bone. You can you can actually very often. I've had cancer. You can take out a cancer, but actually getting a handle on. Alzheimer's or vascular dementia or these other things that we used to be called softening of the brain is very difficult. But is what you're describing a sort of an actual attitude towards old people, do you think? Or is it something that simply, you know, we say the NHS is groaning under the weight of all the things it has to deal with. And that, of course, because most of its regular customers are elderly, as time goes on, I mean, the NHS is used by more old people than it is by young, that what we're describing is a problem with the NHS rather than a sort of social kind of soft genocide that's going on. It's not just the NHS, I think. Um, obviously, it's, it's now councils who have been told they're going to have a precept and then a general increase in council charges, which will go down very badly because people, you know, people are worried about sort of um, money at the moment, quite rightly. There's not enough of it to go around. You know, so, in fact, it, it, does, it does end up, the, the, you know, the problem is... is you know, passed along, you know, like the parcel in the in the Christmas game. It's not just people forget about it. How can you forget about one in three people 
as it were, sort of facing this awful end. It's not a very pleasant death. In fact, you know, it, it, it's hard to think of a worse death than the very moving accounts of having parents, for instance, who sometimes they're violent, but having parents who are no longer sort of aware of who they are or what their family is. I think it's kind of, we are in Holocaust terms here, you know, sort of uh, practically. And to say, well, you know, sort of... Uh, the NHS is is responsible. Not not really. Hospitals are places where you go in to get cured, and once you're cured, you come out. They're not places where you wait, you know, until they find a a place to park you uh, outside the hospital, which is happening increasingly. That's the so-called sort of bed blocking phenomenon, which is in fact causing a sort of uh, a kind of general clogging up of the health system. It's it's very serious. I, one of the examples I give is that. Second World War is born just before the Second World War. It's something those seven years really are with me. But during the Second World War, the Germans had two ways of exterminating what they regarded as human waste. One was the concentration camp, which was, in its way, a very efficient use of bureaucracy and technology. And, you know, it was was very Germanic. The other was what they did with Russian prisoners, which was just put them behind barbed wire and let them eat each other, the Russenlager, as they were called, neglect. And then they could get on with the war. It wouldn't you just require a few, few ancient sort of um, uh, SS Waffen men with with rifles to keep the the Russians sort of dying behind, behind these fences? And it seems to me that we're in a Russian lager situation at the moment. People are being allowed to expire, very often wretched terms, you know, sort of terms which are humiliating. Well, some, something sort of odd going on here because the sort of common media narrative seems to be that the generation who are really screwed is that generation which is maybe now in its 20s or so, and that they're somehow, I mean, this is, I know, the David Willett's argument, that they're being dunned out of the possibility of getting all the things that previous generations have had by the fact that all the sort of money is locked up in boomer houses and property and all that, and that the, the younger generation find it much harder to get jobs, they find it much harder to get houses and it's just you know the argument is that the boomers are the ones who are sitting on all this stuff and that therefore their old age entitlements are effectively sort of spreading a disadvantage is that is that just a misrepresentation of the situation far from it i mean you could have i mean you could have sort of problems on both sides of this divide it seems to me um i know you're a father with young children it must go through your mind you know first of all price of education has gone through the roof, decent education, and then, you know, are these offspring going to get what I had, which was a very, very good sort of final salary pension. I bought houses. I made more money. I made my, I had a very clever wife who was extremely good at choosing properties, and, and those properties made more on the great gravy train, you know, sort of, a, uh, than I did. And I can see that, you know, I've got a son who's, who's sort of... Um, Luckily, his mother, who says very good and probably has given him a house, effectively. But I know I know students now who are paying you know, sort of fifteen hundred this fifteen hundred a month, you know, for shared accommodation in Camden, and the southern region strikes very many of those three hundred, four hundred thousand people every day who can't get to work. They're out there in the sticks because they can't afford to live over the shop, as I did. I mean, I, when I was at UCL, I had a, a flat in Bloomsbury Square, which meant I could practically throw stones at um, 
where I worked if I if I wanted to. So and I feel there is a problem on on both sides uh, intergenerationally, and that both problems should be looked at. Yeah. Know, sort of, uh, and it, but and I we're forming an alliance of the and well, old and young against those. Well, animals. yeah, I mean, sort of. In 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 fact, I mean, it's the fact we are living longer. I'm. I'm 78 years old, which I've, I've lived longer than my, my parents or grandparents. And further back, I, I suspect I may have lived extremely much longer. But, but, you know, and that is a problem. You can't, I mean, I was talking to an economist, and he said we've got three trillion locked up in domestic property, but we can only release, you know, 3% a year because if more money comes out from domestic property, if everyone sells their house, then in fact the whole thing, you know, falls apart. The house of cards uh, just topples. But if people live longer, then to some extent you've got congestion. It's like a traffic. It's like a, a motorway where no one can drive more than 20 miles an hour. What you get is traffic jams because speed of movement, even if you, you know, Chris Hoon and do, do sort of, it, they, they actually loosen up the circulation um, of traffic. Um, and it does seem to me that there are multiple problems and, well, this government, like every government in the last sort of twenty years, talks about joining up problems. You know, sort of so. In fact, they're not not seen as as, as single shot things. And I think you know you can actually say that terrible problems for the young: lack of security, no pensions, very often no benefits. You know, sort of, um, and that huge army of interns, i.e., slaves. I mean. You can see that problem, and at the same time, you can see the problem of the poor old dazed person who leaves the hospital gates and doesn't know where to go. One of the, I mean, a sort of division you could make, I wonder, is is between, I mean, you know, what you what you say in the book is you talk about people, you know, there's no votes in people who've got dementia, who won't, you know, who can't leave the house to vote, who, you know, all the difficulties that the extremely old and the infirm have, and yet we have eventually a boomer government which is catering to a boomer electorate, which, you know, is very active in voting and has been, you know, a lot of a lot of the sort of impetus behind Brexit was, yeah. you know, posted at that, that movement. So you have a very politically mobile electorate that it either is getting into the realm of old or is about to be. So why is it, do you think, that there isn't any movement to embark on the huge, I mean, I think you suggest big kind of, program of hospice building of you know releasing the strain on the nhs by actually introducing dedicated facilities for elderly people what if there isn't a political will to do it now when will there be right you mentioned hospices i think long-term hospices are wonderful institutions i was very close to someone wonderful mind actually i can mention her name natasha spender her mind faded towards the end but she still had enough left to as it were negotiate everyday life and but she would every weekend she would go into a nearby hospice and you know get a bit of TLC tender loving care and then she died in there and they are run by people who really want to be kind and obviously in hospitals as I say the the premium in hospitals get people cured you know get them out quickly in good shape which you can't do if someone has dementia because in fact it's progressive and it's deteriorative and it's horrible. They're going to get worse, and the longer they stay with you, the worse they're going to be, and the more difficult to do anything with. So yeah, the hospice is definitely. I don't know why the government doesn't 
drawn the I mean, it sounds like a thousand points of light, but I think there's a huge kind of volume of goodwill in this country among among your readers, for instance. I mean, I sort of, I bet you have Christmas appeals, and you're astonished at just how generous. I mean, people are actually digging in their pockets today, you know, for the wretched in Aleppo, and these are not rich people generally. And it, it is quite interesting. I, know, I noticed in the newspapers, uh, the ones that oh, I buy all the newspapers and I buy all the magazines, very good value, but. There's a trend at the moment towards, quite interestingly, people saying, well, I'm going to make a living will in which I say or determine that if I have what they call cognitive impairment, I do not want to be kept unnecessarily alive, which would be wretched. What they're saying, in fact, subversively, without quite coming out with it, is euthanasia may well be, in fact, uh, a, a... a part solution to this, dignify, what they call it, dignitas. Subscribes to the Martinemus theory that you should have a booth on every street corner with a martini. a martini and a medal. With, yes. no, <laughs> anyway, yeah, the martini is pure. <laughs> well, he's 60 now. You mentioned David Willits. He's not the first flush of youth. I mean, I mean, you are. Uh, and and doubtless flush. you have. Well, yeah, well, you're in the flush of youth. Let's put it that way. 30 or 40 years on me. And. You must be worried about what, what, what people of your generation are worried about. But it does seem to me that, that sooner or later we're going to have to grasp that nettle. And I think you might well find that, you know, I mean, obviously the church would be against it, the, 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 the legal system would be against it because it would lend itself to misuse very easily. People would, would kill relatives to inherit uh, is, the, is the nightmare. Uh, but I don't think it would be like that. I think you can, you can, you could actually really create a kind of si- situation where people who are, who had the warning signs, you know, sort of. And it's very sad when people don't know that they've they've got Alzheimer's. And I know several people like that who just repeat themselves. You know, in fact, I know one very famous person at the moment. No, I, this hasn't been made public, but who's in that situation? Generally speaking, the press is very good about this. You know, for Harold Wilson, for instance, you know, departed office saying he was fit as a flea, but then in three three years' time, he needed marriage to get his overcoat because he didn't know where he'd left it and things like that. Um, but the press doesn't, you know, Bernard Levin, lots of other famous examples of people who've had this. Ian McCaskill died four days ago as we were speaking, or had was the obituaries were four days ago. The, fo- the weather forecaster suffered with Alzheimer's. I wish they wouldn't say he had a, a battle with Alzheimer's because, in fact, you can't win that battle. But he suffered from it for, for five years. And, and the press generally is very good at not throwing a light on that. But people who have it, you know, they, there are little kind of harbingers and there are, you know, straws in the wind. And presumably there comes a point where you think, well, you know, perhaps I should actually, you know, make, an, as it were, a kind of an arrangement or two. At the end of that film, Still Alice, you remember Marianne Moore, uh, Marianne, Ju- Julianne, Julianne Moore, Moore yeah. that's right, Julianne Moore. You know, sort of, it starts with she forgets a word, lexicon, and she's a linguist, so in fact she, it should be really sort of automatic uh, on the tip of her tongue. And then you know, bit by bit, you know, sort of, there's a deterioration, very humiliating deterioration. She's run by a kind family um, and has a good framework around her. But she makes arrangements to kill herself, and then tragically at the end, we don't know whether she gets the pills or not. You know, sort of. But I think we can't talk rationally about this at the moment. But I think there will come a point when we'll have when we'll have to, you know, when the casualty rates coming. It's worse than Passchendaele. More people survive Passchendaele than they're going to survive uh, Alzheimer's. 
Well, no one's yeah. alive. No one comes out alive. Well, do you think the reason... I mean, I'm curious about it, is that you talk in the book, very interesting, about the tone of voice of a lot of the kind of commentary in the media about old people, partly in terms of the op-eds being aggressively yeah. sort of, you know, you smog-like bastards squatting on your gold. You know, <laughs> how dare you have a triple-lock <laughs> pension. Um, yeah, you're right. Yeah. But also of a sort of invisibility in the sense that it's not sexy to talk about the deaths from Alzheimer's and people being thrown out of hospitals. So, you know, you look at, you know, they're much more concerned with, with the young. Is that kind of turning away, even though the newspapers are often written by and run by and, Patriots, you know, the government's run by yeah, people yeah. who are themselves, you know, heading in the direction yeah, of having yeah. to think about this. Is it a sort of reaction, psychological reaction, do you think? We don't like to look at the age because that, that way goes yeah, us. We, we can be sentimental about it, I think. What do you think? I mean, you, I mean, I mean do you like old people? I'm I'm very in favour of old people. Uh, I think I'm going to be one at some point. I find myself invisible, really, for two reasons I mentioned in the book. One of which, as far as women are concerned, I have no sexual uh, appeal whatsoever. I'm not rich, you see. So there's none of that, you know, sort of... uh, What's that question that Mrs. Merton well, had? Yeah. What, 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 what attracted you to the millionaire professor, oh, yeah. Mr. Sutherland, uh, <laughs> um, uh, Miss Gold, Miss Golddigger? And, and as far as men are concerned, I'm not a risk. You see, men, men are actually much more used to combat because of school. And the, it's very interesting if you set an appointment committee, uh, as I have many times. Men will quite often choose someone who is quite unlike themselves because they quite like crossing swords, you know, and actually yeah. sort of getting into it, you know. They can't hold them back, you know, out, up and out. Whereas women tend to choose people on grounds of sorority. They want people they can work with, you know, and create a block, you know, because they've been oppressed for so long. But the men I meet in the street ignore me, you know, because in fact they just look at me and think, Christ, I'd kill him with one punch. It's true. in these terms as I walk down the street, it's talking, you know, oh, could I take him? Well, maybe you, I'm, you don't walk down Camden High Street like I do to Waitrose, oh, fighting yeah. my way through. But um, actually that thing of invisibility, I thought it was a... Years ago, The Guardian got Zoe Williams at great expense and they did her up yeah. in a sort of as an old lady and they got prosthetics and things like that and they had her walking around to see what it was like being yeah, an old yeah. lady. And so people wrote it and said, you know, you could just have asked natural old lady to write the article. You well, know, indeed, but yes. It's a bit <laughs> like blackface. <laughs> <It is. laughs> kind of old face. The newest, <laughs> the newest fashion. <laughs> well, in fact, I, yeah, it's a young face, isn't it? Kind of inundated at this time of year with things which keep your skin young. You worry, what kind of worry is that addressing? You know, what kind of knob is it twisting? But fear of age. But it happens, if you're lucky. And you see, so the sort of solutions you've talked about in this book, you say, you say that building more hospices and more proper care facilities so you haven't got people in hospitals who, who really shouldn't be in hospitals but should be looked after elsewhere... You've talked about the possibility of euthanasia becoming a discussion, which is you know quite controversial. You also say that there are ways, personally, that you can can gird yourself for battle. In the yeah. Can you talk a bit about those? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, uh, the last part of the book is really about you know, uh, fighting, really um, fighting to retain your best chances. I mean, there there, there are no guarantees that, however, you know, sort of uh, how, how, however you live, you're going to actually. Uh, you know, succeed, but it does seem to me that uh, there are certain things you can you can actually eat well, stop drinking, stop smoking, or drink very moderately, exercise. I mean, it seems to me it would be much more sensible in some ways to give everyone under the age of sixty, including 
David Willett, a gym pass rather than a freedom pass to, to ride buses. But in fact, some people need freedom passes, and so it's not a bad thing. And you can, in fact, you know, there are all sorts of proverbial pieces of wisdom, like what's good for the, the heart is good for the head, so you keep your blood pressure down, you work out five, six times a week, you, you eat sensibly, uh, moderately, and you do all that, and you sort of stay, as they say, in shape. And that will actually lengthen the chances, uh, and will also give you, you know, good sort of resistance as well. Now, that doesn't mean that pancreatic cancer is going to pass you by, you know, because you, you can do 30 press-ups straight off. So that's one thing you can do. And the other thing, as I say, there could be remedies, and I think they're very hard, and it's very hard to see them winning votes particularly with the grey vote, which is crucial, of course. I mean, sort of the one thing that old people retain almost to the point that, you know, they can do anything is, is that they go into the voting booth, unlike young people. There's a good reason for that, actually, because, yeah, it's very hard to register if you're a student, for instance, because you're living in about three or four places. Quite often your, your address changes, you know, sort of four or five times in the course of a degree. So, so in fact, the old people, in fact, who generally stay where they've lived have an advantage in terms of just ambling along to the polling booth. But I think hard decisions... Well, what do you think, Sam? I, I think hard decisions must be made rationally. And as you said, I mean, in passing, I mean, sort of, uh, um, you know, our paramount le- leaders are very... Many of them, you know, sort of well into... Uh, yeah. in, into sort of, uh, you know, sort of 60s and over so territory interesting statistics in your book that I hadn't known about which sort of got us one of which is that they give you a four yearly NHS checkup up to the age of 74 after which you're after on your own apparently you know well yes it doesn't I mean, become that, yearly well it gets too complicated at that point because they'd have to come and see you very often for a lot of right. people and they don't want to do that yeah they keep you going I mean I've kept going on all sorts of things from so the NHS the, the NHS will pres- <laughs> that it will prescribe you Viagra but only for a month that's right, yeah, I had a prostatectomy, which you don't want to know about here, but <laughs> effectively it's sort of, uh, it's a bit like... There's plenty of detail in the book. Well, no, it's a, it's like a, bit, it's a bit like yeah. being disemboweled under general anaesthetic, but, yeah, sort of, um, but then afterwards, they, you know, lest what's left of your genitalia wither in and, and decay, they, they, they suggest that you, um, you have these very good sort of stimulants, which are mainly sort of marketed for erectile dysfunction, but... You know, sort of effectively to you know, to put life in the old thing, but the NHS gives you four a month, four months, which it, which if they prescribe generally for anyone that wants you know, an erectile dysfunction. It, it is a very well, puritanical. I, I think if I if I had sex four times in a month, I'd hang out bunting. You know. Oh, I know. It's sort of it's a. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know when I was your oh, age. I used to, sort of used to like it a bit. Yeah, well, more often than four times a month, once a week. Can I just, before we, we stop, come back back to one of the sort of central points, and you make a very eloquent argument that a lot of the things that people, you know, get so exercised about being sort of unfair universal benefits for the old, you know, the triple lot pension and the bus passes are actually relatively tiny in, in monetary terms, in terms of how many people they affect and in how much more it would cost to means test them. But you do kind of towards the end, you say, you do sort of admit this point we say the old because they're old and because of the wonders of compound interest will often find themselves surprisingly well off i mean where do you come down on the argument that even if it seems unfair to the the thrifty that they have to pay for their own care 
I mean, isn't there a realistic argument that says if you're sitting on a large amount of capital or you know equity in a house, that in the end you can't take it with you and you should be using that to pay oh, for no. care? There are two schools of thought on this. I mean, John Major used to like to talk about the golden stream, which sounds like the kind of thing you read about in telephone boxes, <laughs> um, by which he meant the way in which old people leave you know, sort of their accumulated wealth to their near and dear ones. Mrs. Thatcher was rather, was rather harder on this. She said that, you know, if in, exactly what you just said, you know, if in fact you have a house which, you know, has appreciated in value, you know, very often much more than the cost of living, then in fact you should be prepared to use that, you know, for, for, your, for your health and well-being. I, I don't know where I stand on it. I mean, I... I... I don't know whether I'm a golden streamer or a sort of um, pay for what you want. Um, I think probably the Thatcher argument is going to have to be adopted, and, and already it's happening. I mean, they they pay up to twenty three thousand, which in fact is hurting people. But on the other hand, insurance works that way. I mean, if you belong to, if you have car insurance, you're not paying for it yourself. It's a pooled resource. You know, people in fact who drive for fifty years and never make a claim are paying for the ones that, you know, trash their cars. But pooling it that way, which is what they're doing by, by lumbering, pay, lumbering councils, is, is one solution. But I think it's going to be grossly unpopular. But it, it's going to happen. It's not going to go away, and it's not going to get easier. Uh, and one can feel, I don't know if you'd agree, one could feel that rumbling now, which is going to erupt uh, in ways one can't quite it's predict. Intergenerational war. Well, let's hope it's not that bad anyway. John Sutherland, thank you very much indeed. If you enjoyed that, please do subscribe to our iTunes channel to get a new Spectator Literary podcast every Monday.